KJ, I'm autistic and I have ADHD. And sometimes that means I view situations a little bit differently to other people. Over my life that's caused me to want to hold back and not really say what I'm thinking in case it's misinterpreted or I scare people away. But I've decided to just start sharing my thoughts, so welcome to my socially awkward life. There's a leader in our church who I love dearly, and I really do enjoy listening to him speak. There's something he's said a few times, I've noticed, that he wants to challenge this idea that people are offended with the church. When someone says that they're offended with the church, it's not the whole church, is it? It's usually one person or a few people within an organisation who've done something that's upset them. And he argues like oftentimes that could be him as a church leader. He may have made a decision that they don't like and it's filtered down or maybe he said something they didn't agree with and that if they would come and talk to him about it, he'd be able to point out that you're not really offended with the whole church, you're just offended by him. And when that's not recognised, it can't be discussed, which means there's no opportunity to apologise or to better explain the position so they can't reconcile but the point is you need to be specific when you want reconciliation when we have this vague notion of this nebulous entity the church that's wronged you it's usually kind of illogical because there are so many congregations with so many varying beliefs and ideas And even within one church, there are usually arguments and disagreements over things as simple as whether we do an altar call. The idea that we could organise ourselves well enough to rally the whole church together to agree on something to offend you personally, you know, that seems kind of laughable. And I love his humility that he's willing to say, if you have a problem, come talk to me. I'd love to discuss it with you. And I get it. I really, really do. I totally understand that the point he is making is to go to the person and discuss it. Like it says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother and nothing can be resolved or restored if you storm off and blame everyone. In general, I want to agree. This passage makes sense, except for two situations. The first one is in the situation where there's been abuse. It is absolutely cruel and unacceptable to ask the victim of sexual assault, for example, to go in private to talk to the person who's done that to them. There's no way that this scripture should be applied there. It it does violence to the scripture when you use it with no caveats, no exceptions, and you don't allow for the safety of the victim in those situations. But I've got another issue with it, and that's that sometimes it isn't just one person. What about if there is a systemic cancer eating away at the church because it's a cultural issue And most people aren't even aware that they are participating in it. I do think sometimes it's appropriate to address the church as a whole. 
because microaggressions are like death by a thousand paper cuts. And if you're anything like me, you can't really go to a person and say, hey, that really hurt, because that comment on its own wouldn't have. And so you'd be rightly called out for overreacting or choosing to take offence, because in that isolated moment, that one little comment shouldn't have been so painful. But it's the reinforcing of the gnawing feeling that you aren't welcome, that you don't matter and that no one understands you and that it would actually be easier for everyone if you would stop inconveniencing them and just go away. Then even a little comment hurts because it reinforces the trauma and pain of living in a community where you've always felt like an outsider and you watch it welcome others so easily those little paper cuts that happen over and over and over again and most people don't even see them happening. Honestly, I feel so awkward about publicly calling out the church on stuff like this because I would so love to be able to just speak to one person privately and know that we could make a difference and resolve it. But that's just not how it works. And for those who are worried about it, I, I do speak to individuals about this stuff all the time. In my own church, in other churches, in churches I'm connected with, to leaders who I think might be able to have more influence than I do in this area. But honestly, even though those people usually can see that there's a problem, or at least by the end of a conversation about it, they agree that there's a problem, they don't really know how to make a difference either. And it's my firm belief that to overcome the culture, we need to be more open about educating people on disability theology as a starting point so that we can challenge the underlying false beliefs that so often create barriers to entry for the community. And only then can we really start to challenge the behaviours once we have established a right foundation of agreeing that God has a plan for everyone's life that is good and that your worldview of what is and isn't good might be flawed. That is a big topic that will probably be another whole episode. But today, I want to help you recognise that there is a problem culturally in our churches. And to help you understand what I mean, I'm going to share some real life experiences, some of which are really quite hard to talk about. I did place a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode and it might be that you need to turn the episode off now and maybe skip on. Some of these are stories of things that have happened to me and some of them are things that have happened to friends. I'm going to try and anonymise them and make sure that it's not easily identifiable for anyone. And that's because this isn't about shaming the people involved. It's about helping to raise awareness that there is a problem. There are many, many good people who I love dearly who have still hurt me through ignorance. And I've seen that happen over and over again to other people as well. And that's the point of opening this type of discussion, right? It's not to make people feel bad. It's to help good people understand that the actions they are taking are hurting others. And hopefully they want to make a change. So I'm going to start off sharing some things that you might think are not that bad um, and then I'll share some of the things that I think most decent humans would agree are abuse. So 
again, that's your final trigger warning. I'm also going to stick mostly to the experiences of autistic people. I say mostly, there are a few variants. But again, I've done this because I don't want to make my friends identifiable by disability. And if I was to say, you know, I was told I couldn't be in the church choir for the carol service despite having rehearsed all year because there wasn't a ramp to the stage, you'd know that's not me because I can, you know, mostly when I'm not having an ME flare-up walk. And so that was a real incident, by the way, but it's old enough and I don't think the person is identifiable. I'm mostly going to stick to things that are autism related. Now, the first one is that believing I, a lack of eye contact meant I had a spirit of rebellion. I was told as a teenager that I was not allowed to pray for others. And others in the community were actually warned not to let me lay hands on them because I might spiritually harm them in some way. I've also had leaders warn other church members not to pray for me for similar reasons and that only they as experienced leaders should be dealing with me. Which, you know, <laughs> as ostracising as that is and as, as sad and exclusionary that, as that is, the thing that most frustrates me about it is that it's not you personally who has any special magic powers when you pray for someone, right? You don't have any special extra ability to pray. It's the Holy Spirit that heals people and cares for people and comforts people. And so your experience really doesn't come into the equation, even if there was some terrible spirit of rebellion that was preventing me from making good eye contact. Your history as a leader or someone who is a mature Christian is irrelevant. Anyone can ask for God's mercy and grace and he gives it freely. One time a leader asked me if I liked serving on the worship team. In fact, it's happened multiple times. And when I said, yeah, I really love being part of the team, they responded with, wow, it's weird because you always look so miserable. And that's really painful because we talk so much about authenticity in church. I'm going to do another whole episode on that as well. But as if masking isn't hard enough, to feel the need to do so during worship, when my focus should be on God, is actually wounding. We preach authenticity and tell people, come as you are, be free. And yet the autistic community's communication, because it looks different to neurotypical communication, means that we're expected to continue to mask to make other people feel comfortable with our presence in ministry. Speaking of which, at least three, maybe four separate occasions at two different churches, I've been unable to sustain a mask after a leader has shouted at me or um, told me off for an expression on my face that they felt was inappropriate or for asking a genuine question to clarify their intent which they presumably considered rude. I'm still not 100% sure why. And on both occasions, I spent the rest of the meeting with tears rolling down my face, red cheeks, like absolutely mortified. And nobody asked me if I was okay or how I was doing. When a friend of mine joined the ministry team, she was informed by a leader who didn't know that we knew each other 
that they shouldn't believe what I said because I often made up stories about childhood abuse. By the way, children with disabilities are known to be at higher risk of abuse. What I'd actually disclosed was church abuse from another church and she had decided that that must be a lie. When she was confronted by my friend who said, no, those things really happened, I was there, the leader shrugged and said, oh, well, it always seemed like she was lying. When my autistic child was being regularly physically assaulted by another child in the children's ministry and I reported it, I was told that it wasn't true and that he was telling tales. And when I said I'd seen bite marks and bruises on him, I was told that they couldn't be that bad because the boys were best friends and always playing together. That I or my son must have misunderstood the situation. When a neurotypical volunteer months later at the group finally saw something that honestly was a lot milder than what I had been reporting, immediate action was taken. And so why were my son and I's voices dismissed? The assumption was that we aren't capable of correctly assessing a situation. Now, I have a few friends who tell me I don't have to mask around them and that church should be a safe place to be who I am. I find this concept astonishing because I have to remind them I'm always thinking about how I communicate and trying so hard to make sure that I am coming off in a way that is acceptable so that my voice can be heard and I don't get dismissed in situations like this. I don't have the luxury and privilege of living authentically in the community and hoping that my children will be safe. Now the next one is so prevalent, I'm just gonna come out here and say I've heard it from several people in several churches and I've experienced it myself. And this is one where you are advised to join a group for special needs families only to find out that the group is actually a support group for people who are carers of children with special needs. And so you end up sitting there and listening to people talk about how hard it can be to be around people like you. And then they all pray for strength for one another. And the bonus is that if you try and talk about lack of support for people like you in church, people will keep pushing you to these groups and saying there is support, you're choosing not to engage with it. I once intervened when I heard somebody talking about a small child who they'd proudly declared that they had delivered from a demon. I only overheard the conversation, but what they described to me sounded like a meltdown, and it was probably not helped by them shouting, leave in the name of Jesus, whilst holding the child down. Instead of giving them space and supporting them, they compounded the stress and trauma that the child was dealing with. I mean, that to me seems like such a clear example of taking the Lord's name in vain. When I tried to explain to them that what they had potentially seen happen was a meltdown, I was dismissed as not understanding, obviously I wasn't there, and then I was told I did not have a spirit of discernment like they did. Don't worry, this one was followed up with a safeguarding team. But it's a great example of why training and education is so important when you're working with volunteers. Because particularly in children's ministry, you will be working with undiagnosed neurodivergent children who've been brought to church. 
because the barriers to diagnosis can be really high and especially if they have disabled parents too, they may not even be aware that there's a problem yet. I've personally had more deliverance sessions than I can count where I was held down and physically assaulted without my consent to the point that later medical treatment showed fractures to my skull, wrists and ribs. I've been held face down in a ministry tent sobbing that I couldn't breathe as I inhaled dust and dirt while grown men sat on my back to prevent me from getting away so they could minister to me. These types of churches should be shut down and it's easy to look at the churches we attend and say well that doesn't happen here but I've got two responses to that and the first is would you know? A lot of my deliverance sessions were done in private at a pastor's home and they don't exactly advertise that stuff to other church members. And secondly, well, great, I'm really glad you are in a church where this kind of major abuse isn't happening. But is your church taking responsibility for educating on disability theology in a way that it becomes the cultural norm in Christianity? So that when new Christians come across churches like this, those fringe, odd churches that aren't the mainstream ones, they can't be deceived or groomed into passively accepting it because it is so countercultural to our faith for a disabled person to be so misunderstood and so poorly treated that we can accept that, that, that no sign of divergence could be a sign of the demonic. When I say the church needs to address its ableism, I'm not talking about one or two habits that need to be changed. I'm not saying we need an extra disabled toilet or, you know, could we make the doors a bit wider. I'm saying we need to stop turning a blind eye to the fact that there's an in-crowd and actively pursue measures that draw in everybody and make them feel safe and loved not as an act of charity, but as a real member of the community. We need sermons that address the fact that Moses was called to lead. And when he said, I can't, I'm disabled, God said, I created you just as you are, and you are a leader, and then provided him with everything he needed to succeed. So that when we are looking for new leaders, people aren't being discounted or even discounting themselves because they've never seen a leader who's disabled before. We need sermons on how the disabled God, with his body bruised and broken, is the glory that we see in heaven. Not restored to our idea of perfection, he is perfection whilst his body is broken. We need to talk about how Jesus asked people what they wanted from him. He didn't assume that just because you were blind you wanted to see like everybody else. And on that topic, we often see Jesus healing someone's disability and restoring them to a community where they'd been outcast. Maybe those healings weren't just about making somebody physically perfect. Maybe they were actually about helping someone to be accepted in an ableist society where they'd been thrown away. The church is called to care for society's most vulnerable people. So we should be at the forefront of accepting, supporting and loving disabled people. Not as an act of charity, but because we know that every single person is a child of God. His unique, perfect, amazing creation who were born in this way, at this place and at this time for a purpose. 
and that our churches can't be complete without them. These missing sheep are valuable. And according to Lifeway Research, 99% of pastors felt that a person with disabilities would feel welcome in their church. And yet 70% of disabled Christians said they felt unwelcome in church. Who is missing from our churches? Not just from the congregations, but from our leadership. God doesn't just accept that people are missing. In Luke 15, Jesus says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbours and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep which was lost. This parable is the first in a series of stories that he tells about lost things, and most likely his audience had no concept of what owning a hundred sheep would be like. The audience weren't wealthy enough to own anything like that many. And when I listen to sermons today in church or online at other churches, I find most speakers are trying to be relatable. They share stories of their personal experience that makes them seem just like you, so everyone feels comfortable and safe. But the thing is, not everyone does share those experiences. Some of us have really different experiences. And in some areas, we do try to address this. I mean, honestly, I don't think I've seen a Mother's Day celebration in years that didn't also include and spiritual mothers, because everyone can relate to that. And we don't have to have a service that only speaks for part of the room. Although I guess technically everyone has a mother, but I digress. The point is, we're so determined to be inclusive this area, but we're only inclusive of what we think is the norm. Jesus didn't do that. He told a story with so much hyperbole and exaggeration that people had to really stop and think, what would I do in this situation? Rather than, oh, this is what I did when it happened a few weeks ago. He makes people think and imagine a circumstance different from their own, and then used it to explain what God was like. And I think that captures our attention even more than a story about your everyday life. But the truth of it is relatable and applicable to all of our lives, even if the story and the experience was different. When I was younger, I read a book called The Education of a Child, The Wisdom of Femelon, and it was recommended on a home ed forum. And it's a really fascinating book from 1687, talking about how to educate royal children because that was his job. He talks about sharing exciting fairy tales and adventures and adversity and stories where things don't all work out okay in the end. And how important this is for a young prince or princess. And here's why. That child has a target on their heads from the moment they're born. And should they be kidnapped or held hostage, they need it so deeply ingrained in them to hold fast that heroes do the right thing even until the end. Despite torture and adversity, they hold their heads high and say, my God can save me. And if he does not, I will still praise him knowing he has a plan and a purpose for my life. Because the stories of heroes who do good are so ingrained in them, they don't need to be told the specifics. The excitement and the magic of an experience outside of their normal is what hooked them in to learn the lesson. 
which they then apply in any life circumstance. Not a lecture and a set of rules on what to do when this specific thing happens. So back to our missing sheep. The stats I shared about all the disabled missing people from our congregations, I want to take a step further. Who's missing from your leadership team? Where are your disabled leaders? Do you regularly have different speakers with diverse life experiences giving sermons on a Sunday? Or is it just white neurotypical able-bodied men? If your church is a little more progressive, you might get some women or ethnic minorities speaking, but how often do you have disabled speakers or disabled worship leaders? And I don't mean, you know, that awful term, but disability porn, where you have like a visibly disabled guest speaker who comes and tells you how they've found joy despite being disabled. And if they can overcome their circumstances, even as bad as they are, you can too. I just mean your normal rotor, not specifically a sermon about disability, but just speaking on normal topics from a different lived experience than yours. I actually think this is part of why there are so many disabled people missing from our churches. An example of how this works is clear when we look at race. When we look at the races that make up church congregations, they don't tend to be reflective of the diversity in the community of big towns and cities. If the pastor and leadership team are predominantly white, so is most of the congregation. If they're predominantly black, then so is most of the congregation. I've even known churches have a deliberate strategy of promoting ethnic minorities into visible leadership roles, and it works. Over time, the makeup of the congregation begins to shift and become more diverse. The same is true when we have women leaders. It only takes one or two for other women to start to believe that maybe they could have a role to play as well. If that's true, then maybe one of the reasons we don't see disabled people in our churches is because we're not allowing them positions of visible leadership. We can say, oh, well, they haven't applied for the job, but why not? Is it because the job specification didn't make it clear that you'd be willing to make disability accommodations for the right candidate? Would you be willing to make them? Is it because they don't have enough self-belief because they've never been given a role model like themselves in a leadership position? When I was back at Soul Survivor, they recognised a gender gap in worship leaders and they started actively promoting female worship leaders. And it worked. Is it because we aren't giving smaller leadership roles in small groups or less visible ministries? Is it because your congregation are so poorly educated on disability and different communication styles, because they've never seen a leader who didn't fit the norm, that they start shying away from people who are different and won't follow them? God chose Paul to travel extensively and plant churches even though he was so old and blind that he had to dictate letters to other people to write for him. He chose Moses to lead Israel despite being slow of speech. He chose four leprous disabled men to check on an enemy camp and share provisions amongst his people. In 2 Corinthians it says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
Maybe we've been so busy choosing leaders who we think are capable that we've forgotten that the Holy Spirit is the only difference that makes any of us capable. So finally, I want to talk a bit about invitation versus inclusion, because they really aren't the same thing. And disability ministry is only the first step. The goal is a church where it isn't needed because we've made it accessible to everyone. A good example is communion. I've been in churches where it's common to come up to the rail and kneel for communion, but that's not inclusive. And you can say to people, oh, well, stay in your seat and we'll bring it to you. But that then makes them feel like an outsider who's not fully participating. So the best option is just to change the way we do communion so that everyone does what the less able people are doing and then nobody is being stood out as the person who needs the accommodation. We just all take communion in our seats. I love the practice of passing and sharing in our seats so that we don't exclude people with our access arrangements. If communion is supposed to be a reenactment of the Last Supper, that's a Passover Seder, right? So we set a place and a cup for Elijah because we remember those who are missing. So if you don't have wheelchair users in your church or those with mobility aids who are unable to get up for communion, it doesn't matter. Make it accessible now so the first time they come they feel welcome. We're remembering the missing people so that the first poor individual who turns up feeling like an inconvenience, doesn't walk away feeling ashamed that they didn't manage to fit into your routines. I can't tell you how many times I've heard disabled people tell me that they couldn't ask for access arrangements at a church because they don't want to put anyone out. They're so used to feeling like an inconvenience everywhere they go that they're ashamed to ask you for change. And I get it because I often feel the same. It's really hard to ask for accommodations from volunteers in particular because it feels like they're not paid and I guess whatever they're offering, I should just be grateful. But ultimately, our churches will never be safe and inclusive places for disabled people unless our communities are willing to serve all members in a way that gives everyone the same access, not in a way that treats everyone the same. There's a sort of classic um, example that people use to explain the difference between equality and equity and it's if you imagine having a one meter 1.5 meter high fence around a sports match and we have somebody who's 1.7 meters tall and somebody who's 1.4 meters tall and I've got two boxes that are 10 centimeters is it fair to give both parties a 10 centimeter block Or would it be fairer to give both blocks to the person who is 1.4 metres so that they can see and they can enjoy the match in the same way as the taller person can? Treating people differently so they can achieve the same level of access to our community has to be our goal, even if you're a volunteer. And the leadership need to train and educate their volunteers without fear that they're going to lose them and just trust that God is going to provide what you need. Our church recently cancelled their youth programme. They asked for volunteers and they didn't get enough. And so they announced with great sadness that they would not be able to run a youth programme this term. Within, I think, about a week, they had enough volunteers to run the programme. But 
until it was cancelled, nobody stepped forward. They hadn't relaxed the criteria for serving. They just said, well, we can't recruit enough people, so we won't be running. And almost immediately, the Holy Spirit convicts the people to volunteer, and there is enough. Being inclusive might be harder work. It might require you to need more volunteers, and your volunteers might have to work a little bit harder. But don't be so afraid of losing volunteers for a ministry that your ministry isn't inclusive of the individuals that you're trying to serve. I listened to a really great podcast on this. Um, I think it was called the Accessible God podcast. And one of the hosts has cerebral palsy. And he was talking about how he struggles to control his grip strength. So when he grasps the bread, he makes a mess. And for a long time, he was ashamed. And he had people feed him communion. But he really wanted to fully participate. And yes, that left crumbs. Are we inclusive enough to allow someone to make a mess with our sacrament? Or are we too worried about the carpet or how hard it will be to clean up? So we remove even the ability to feed yourself from someone. Can we accept that a little bit of mess helps to create a safe and loving community for everybody? I really hope so. And I'd love to know more about what's going on in churches all over the country or all over the world even. If you want to share your experience of culture in church surrounding disability, I want to hear it. So drop me a message at writetokatiejoe at gmail.com. That's W-R-I-T-E, the number two, and then K-A-T-I-E-J-O at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for hanging out with me while we talked about this topic. And if you loved it, please share with your friends. I'd love to hear from you too. Do get in contact and check out the show notes.